I'm ad-libbing a little bit there. She's left me to serve alone. Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The thing is, both of these ladies were in the presence of God. Both of them were in the presence of the Lord. And there's a difference, ladies and gentlemen, that we have to understand between something that is essential and something that is important. There's a difference. Something that is essential is something you can't do without. You have to have it. Something that is important is simply important. It's necessary, but you may be able to live without it. You can't live without the Lord. We can't make it from here to there without the Spirit of the Lord. And the thing is, what Martha was doing, she wasn't in sin. She wasn't sinning, but she chose something lesser. She chose something that wasn't as valuable as what Mary chose. And see, we're in church today. We're all in the presence of God. And that's important. It's important, Brother Murphy, to be in church. But it's essential to connect to Jesus while you're here. It's not good enough simply to to sit in a pew. You're not punching a time clock. It's absolutely important that we connect to what God is trying to tell us tonight. Can you say amen? Praise the Lord. Brother Murphy? Come and give us what the Lord has told you. You did. Thank the Lord. Hope you benefited out of it. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that your marriage is a little happier today than it was this time last week. That's what I'm hoping. And uh, Or if you're thinking about getting married, maybe you'll think a little bit different and what have you. But it is great to see all of you, and uh, thank you all so very much for being here tonight. And what an amazing, amazing service this past Sunday. Uh, I am so thankful for the patience of the Lord in our lives, in our church, in everything that we do. And I'm expecting, anticipating uh, much the same this coming Sunday. Lord willing, so you don't want to miss this coming Sunday. And uh, uh, so make plans to be here and see what the Lord has in store. Thank the Lord. There's an announcement that I've been wanting to make. And when you, when you want to make announcements, when, when I do, uh, I try to calculate and strategize and what have you. And uh, for this announcement, I chose to make it on Wednesday instead of Sunday. And uh, sometimes I do that, and for those of you that listen to it, pay attention to it, and remember it, maybe you can help me spread the word. But since we're doing a series on, on the family, which last Wednesday night and tonight especially will be on, on marriage, I felt it'd be a good opportunity to make this announcement. It's been a, a while since I've made it. But in keeping with marriage and the family series that I'm doing, um, I want to make a reminder when it comes to marriage and people wanting to get married. That first of all, pastor does not marry a couple if one is in the church, and what I mean by that, believes and lives, apostolic doctrine, our message, and so on, and the other doesn't. Um, I don't marry couples. I I think the Bible is very explicit and implicit um, throughout the Bible concerning that subject. And uh, I understand in talking to the ministry team that they feel much the same way. 
Secondly, according to our church bylaws, in order for a couple to use the Grace Church campus for your wedding, uh, you must be, both must be members of Grace Church or one must be a member of Grace Church and the other a member in good standing at another apostolic church. So I need for everybody to remember that, especially if you're thinking about getting married and if you want to marry someone outside our faith, then you need to anticipate um, this response. And um, so uh, I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody here tonight, but I did want, since we're doing this series on marriage and the family and what have you, I wanted to just take advantage of the moment to um, make that announcement to you again. So let's begin our Bible study tonight. Again, I had a great time last Wednesday night, and I kind of got fussed at a little bit last Wednesday night for not going long enough, and got fussed at about this past Sunday about going a little too long, so I don't know what to do. Um, if I preach, you know, 15, 20 minutes, it's too short. If I go an hour, it's too long, so we'll try to find a happy medium somewhere. Thank the Lord. You glad to be here tonight? Are you folks glad to be here tonight? Okay. Uh, last Wednesday night, I defined what is marriage. I gave you a definition for that. And first of all, it's a divine institution. Marriage was not man's idea. It was God's idea. And when you marry God's way, it works out a whole lot better. Uh, Then I talked to you about a legal marriage. Um, There is a, a little bit of a stirring, a little bit of a movement in our culture right now that says, well... I can just get a preacher to marry me, and I'm married even though I don't have a marriage license from the state. That's not marriage either. Uh, It takes both uh, to make you married. So you want to marry according to God's principle and what have you, and uh, you also want to be legally married. That is a marriage that's recognized by the church and by the state. And then we talked about Christian marriage. We talked about the four classifications of marriage that I couldn't get anybody to raise their hand and say, yeah, this is where I'm at in my marriage. Uh, But I'm joking. I didn't ask you to do that. Uh, We talked about the happy marriage. You're still starry-eyed marriage. You're still on your honeymoon marriage. Even though it's been like 682 years, you're still on a honeymoon with your spouse. That's a happy marriage. And then you have a good marriage. And then you have the agreeable marriage, and then the permissible marriage. We talked about the four classifications of marriage. And then we talked about the purpose of marriage, and I want to emphasize if you do it God's way, it works a whole lot better. If you go out on your own and get married without considering God and God's way and God's plan and God's will, um, the Bible said they'll sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. When you don't do it God's way, you invite the devil into your marriage to do it his way. I thought that was a pretty good point. Uh, And then I talked to you last Wednesday night about choosing the right life partner. And uh, I talked about our differences between male and female and what have you. Spent a little bit of time on that and then we concluded. So with that little thought in mind, if you were not here Wednesday night, 
I would encourage you to go back and uh, watch it on our podcast, and uh, hopefully it will be a blessing to you. So let me begin tonight again. Uh, we're talking about God's plan for the family. And uh, last Wednesday night we did Building a Partnership Part 1. Tonight I'm going to do Building a Partnership Part 2. And uh, I would like to read from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Not using the screens for this series. I want you to be able to focus and not have that uh, distraction for this particular series. Have you folks, before I read this scripture, have y'all ever thought that the, how much the Bible applies to marriage? When it talks about loving one another and all that kind of stuff. It seems like somehow, at least my perception of Pentecostal culture, we encourage loving the sinner, but not so much your spouse. I don't know, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe if your spouse starts acting like a sinner, they're easier to love because we teach that. So the more heathen you are as a spouse, the more your spouse will love you back, maybe. That's not what's taught here. The Bible said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, I know that's talking about the church but it's a whole lot easier to have that in the church when you have it at home. I thought that was a pretty good point, too. It's a whole lot easier to be of one mind and one accord in church when you're one in one mind and one accord at home. And everybody said amen. So marriage is a partnership where a man and a woman can develop character as they earnestly strive to meet each other's needs. Through their total commitment to Jesus and each other, God can work on them to refine them and develop their full Christian or Christ-like potential. So building a partnership is a lifetime project. There is an intense worldly cultural attack on the marriage today, as we all know. And the devil will use any little thing, anything, any little thing, big thing, medium-sized thing, it don't matter to destroy the family, to destroy the marriage. So constant, continual maintenance must be done to preserve the unity and strength of the marriage relationship. This is not left up to just one of the spouses in a marriage. Husbands, you don't lean on your wife to take care of all this stuff because they're a little more emotional anyway. That's not how this works. Um... Wives, you don't depend on your husband to do it because he's supposed to be the man of the house. It takes husband and wife to constantly work to maintain a good, healthy, quality, happy marriage. So I want to begin tonight by describing the difference between love and infatuation when it comes to marital attraction. Let's begin tonight with infatuation. Infatuation, you have, to, you have to carefully examine and compare your feelings with those of your spouse concerning some facts about infatuation and love. I believe tonight that both infatuation and love are real. I think both of those things are real. So it is extremely important 
in approaching marriage, wanting to get married to somebody, and being married to somebody, it is imperative that we know the difference. So let me give you what I believe is the, a good definition of infatuation. Infatuation means to be inspired or possessed with passion. That's what the word actually means according to definition. Because it is an inspiration, it is a sudden inclination and attraction. Infatuation is self-centered. Infatuation always involves two or more persons. Infatuation presents a false sense of security to disguise personal insecurity. Infatuation can cause a loss of ambition, appetite, and interest in personal goals. I have seen this and heard this all of my life. You know, your daughter falls in love with some cat, and um, all of a sudden she starts failing in school, and she don't want to do her chores around the house anymore. And when the boy gets obsessed with gets this infatuation thing going on, he's useless. You can't get him to you can't hardly get him out of bed unless he's going to see his girlfriend somewhere. I've seen this. It's a real deal. And parents just roll their eyes and they sigh and say, Oh, come on, and they try to talk you out of it and all that kind of stuff. But this is what infatuation does. Infatuation produces daydreams, and may I add fantasies, about unattainable things. Infatuation slash fantasies, I'm going to add the word fantasies. They produce thoughts and desires about things that are not attainable. We need to, have, we need to absolutely know the difference. Infatuation ignores real problems. Infatuation is attracted only by physical appearance and contact. Infatuation is impulsive and unpredictable. Infatuation presses for immediate obligation. In our, back in my day, when I was a teenager, we would call it going steady. But now it's when a couple becomes an item, or they become a thing. Or what other, who knows what other terms and whatever's put in that blank. But infatuation can continue to press for a more secure, permanent commitment, which is marriage. And that's where infatuation can be very, very dangerous. Because infatuation doesn't last. It doesn't last. Okay, y'all sitting there looking at me funny. Let's take the little boy and little girl, you know, they're 17, 18 years old, and they're all infatuated with each other. And they get married based on infatuation. And four years later, the little girl that he was so infatuated by physically, you know, she's gained about 35 pounds. She's had four or five kids. And all of a sudden, the I don't love you anymore comes in the conversation. Am I being real? Uh, we've seen it. All of us have seen it. Infatuation is unable to be deprived. Younger girls have literally run away from home to be with a boy. They'll leave all the security. They leave all the financial support. They leave everything. I know a young lady that, that ran off with a, she was in 16, 17 years old, ran off with a 30-year-old man she met on the Internet. Took the place over a week to find her. 
It's infatuation. Infatuation demonstrates little or no real affection. That's infatuation. Let me talk to you about love. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a similar uh, presentation with love, but it's going to take me uh, you know, 45, 50 minutes to get to it. I'm kidding. I'll be there in a few minutes. Let's talk about love. Jesus gave us the order of love. Now remember, marriage is God's idea. You can't forget that point. So when God starts talking to you about loving people, then he presents it the right way, and in the right order it should come. So Jesus gave us the order of divine love when he reviewed the first and second commandments with a Jewish lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus said unto him, First and foremost, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, period. Again, I can't impress this enough. Marriage is God's idea, not yours. Marriage wasn't your parents' idea or your grandparents' idea. It was God's idea. And he wants you to follow the precedent, the principles, and literally the commandments that he's established when it comes to getting married. And then he went on to say, The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, he said, Hang all the law and the prophets. So the divine order of love is presented here. First of all, if you're going to love, period. If you're going to love. If you're going to love your cat, if you're going to love your job, if you're going to love your house, your car, your outfit that you're wearing right now. If you're, if you're going to develop loving something. The first thing you should recognize at an age of accountability is you should love God first. Love goes up first. Love goes up first. You don't fall in love with somebody and then say, God, I'll catch you later. You know, if our marriage works out 10 years from now, then we'll start loving you. It don't go in that process. God wants you to love him first. Why? Because God knows how to develop real, genuine love, not only for a human to love him, but for humans to love themselves. God develops that. And then love goes inward. You have to love yourself. And then love goes outward. You love others. So love goes up, love goes in, and love goes out. That's God's plan. It helps make marriage better when you understand this principle. So let's talk about upward love. What is love? Love is an emotion that defies definition. If you ask 10 people to give you the definition of love, you're going to get 10 different definitions. But the Bible teaches that God is love. Let me read a couple of scriptures here tonight in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, John said, let us love one another. Let us love one another. That's just not church people. That includes your spouse. 
It makes it even better when your spouse is a church person. We love one another, right? And everyone that loves is born of God. Your ability to love somebody was given to you by God. And if you love one another, as the Bible teaches, then the Bible says you know God. You have some idea of who God is. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And then he went on to say in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So this whole love thing didn't come from the hippie movement. Peace and love and love and not war and all. It didn't start there. It was instituted by God. I want everybody to understand that. And when you start with loving God first, when you love God first, He helps you navigate through all the difficult choices that life has in front of you that needs to be made. So the attributes of love can be read as they're clearly listed in 1 Corinthians 13, for example. The supreme example of love was displayed in the life and ministry of Jesus. So since we must learn of God, since we must learn of God, it follows that love is learned as well, and as love is learned, love grows. Somebody said one time, we don't fall in love, we grow in love. And I agree with that. Love never stands still. It moves forward or it dies. Our love for God must be carefully nurtured or we'll lose it. If you don't maintain and retain your relationship with God, you'll lose it. We become like the church at Ephesus, which had lost its first love, the Bible said. However, if you lose that love, it can be found again. Everybody listen. Through the conduit of repentance. So when you have marital issues, you can find that love again toward your spouse, your life partner, through the conduit of repentance. American culture, we've been taught for years that nothing is ever my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And most of the people who come talk to me about marital issues, they're always coming to rat out their spouse. It's never on them. Very few people come and say, Pastor, I've been an idiot and I've been treating my spouse horrible and I need to start doing better. And if you'll help me with that, I appreciate it. It's very rarely the case. They want to come in there, men want to come in there and say, my wife is the biggest witch that ever lived on this, in this hemisphere. She's horrible, she's mean, she don't do this, she don't do that, and did blah, blah, blah. And the wife comes and says, my husband's the biggest idiot on the planet, and I regret marrying him, and womp, 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 womp. When the Bible teaches that the restoration of love comes through the conduit of repentance, The Holy Ghost spoke to the church at Ephesus and said, if you want to get back on track, you do the first works first. And that is repent, which is asking for forgiveness and changing your ways. But pastor, it's so hard to change my ways when I've been so perfect and it's never my fault. It's always on there. You tried to convince God of that one time, didn't you? 
How did that work out? <laughs> but it starts with repentance. Repentance melts the heart. It humbles the heart. And, and it takes both people to do it. It just can't be one person. It takes both people to do that and so on. I've spent a lot of time on that point, but I only have 16 minutes left, and i got like 16 pages to go. Um, and then there's inward love. Now, I want to... Jesus said if you're going to love your neighbor or if you're going to love a fellow human being, which includes your spouse, it's necessary to love yourself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but I want to make, I want to make two statements. First of all, you can't scripturally, the Bible teaches against you hating what God loves. So does Jesus love you? If he loves you, then who are you to hate you? You're saying you know more about God. You're more qualified on this subject than God is. So it's imperative if, if, if you don't think much of yourself, what have you, you don't hate what God loves. The second thing I've noticed through the years is people who don't think much of themselves, they put very little value on their conduct. So that means in a marital relationship, if you know you got a guy of low self-esteem and he sees this chick walking down the street over there and he goes and you know uh, does his little famous lines that they do in bar rooms and stuff and whatever and finally coaxes her into a real romantic place and they commit adultery. He says, what did the man say? He always says, well, honey, to his wife, it didn't mean anything. You know why he says that? It's because he don't love himself. And he thinks his conduct is okay or it has no value. If you love yourself, then you care about your conduct. I don't know if you folks are in a trance or a coma or I've just got you completely spellbound. I can't figure it out here right now. But uh, let me keep moving. I've got a lot of territory to cover. Well, it's only 8 o'clock. I've got 30 more minutes. Um, And we have to understand in a marital relationship and even a personal relationship with ourselves, we all are undergoing change. Is there anybody here tonight that's about 80, 80, about 95 years old and you're the exact same way now that you were when you were 14? We all go through change. We all go through change change everybody changes is anybody the same weight that you were when you got married say that alone mark you don't count son you've only been married three days or something you know it's ridiculous uh it's a good try though uh let me ask that question in a year and see where he stands uh but uh we all change we all change and we have to be we have to understand that and when we feel a change going on in our life, it's imperative that we take advantage of that change to even be more in alignment with the will and purpose of God for our life. All right, let me move on to outward love. When I learn to love God, when I learn to love God, then I will simultaneously learn to love myself. When I learn to love God, then I will simultaneously learn to love myself. And when I have grown to love myself and realize my self-worth, then I'm ready to obey the commandment to love my neighbor as myself. When I love God and I love myself, then I'm ready to pursue 
a relationship with someone else is what the Bible is teaching. This is precisely the principle invoked when Paul asked husbands to love their wives as they love themselves. This is what Paul was saying. It's imperative that we do that. So it's been said that love is an emotional desire that one feels for another person greater than the emotional desire they feel for themselves. So it's a desire to feel the needs of another person and to make them happy. Uh, Giving of oneself in love requires four basic concepts. If you're going to give yourself to somebody in love, it requires four basic things. Number one is strict attention needs to be uh, paid attention to. Strict attention needs to be given to the needs of the other person. You can't be selfish in a marriage. It can't be all about you. If it is, you're not going to make it. Marriage will not be a good, happy marriage. Number two is a feeling of responsibility for the emotional needs of the other person has to be manifested. You have to care. Love is a conduit through which you can care about the feelings, wants, and desires of your spouse. If you systematically don't give a rip about how they feel about things, you're not going to have a good marriage. You can't be selfish. And just because you go to Walmart once a month with your spouse doesn't mean you're satisfying all of their needs. Well, I got more amen on that going to Walmart. I don't know Walmart was that big of a deal in marriage. Uh, Talk about Walmart for a while, I guess. Number three is highest respect for the uniqueness of the other person needs to be considered. You have to respect the uniqueness of your spouse. And then it's important to possess a thorough knowledge of the person to be loved. And I I know marriage is, is, is full of very challenging moments. I've been married going on 42 years. I know a little bit about the subject. Um, there's a lot of challenging moments of when to do and what to do and, and when to do and when not to do and all of those kind of things. But if there are things in your marriage that just really grieves your spouse, then I think you need to be real attentive to their disappointments. You can't expect that person to be happy with you if you are just systematically being difficult and uncooperative and won't cater at all to their feelings. There's about eight people here tonight. You owe me $100 after church for making that statement. I'll be standing right over there. (laughs) But it's true. It is nonetheless true. When you look at creation and how God created, creation goes through cycles of life and death. For example, trees drop their leaves in the winter, and they put new leaves on in the spring, and, you know, animals don't live that long, most of them. And so it's just cycles of life and death, but not so in marriage. Marriage is to be, is intended to be till death do you part. That's the intent. That's the godly intent, the biblical intent of marriage. But it, it shouldn't go through cycles of life and death. It should systematically grow every year. Every year. I've made the statement many times. I do not love Sister Murphy tonight the way I did when I married her. Love has changed. It's grown. She wasn't the mother of my children when I married her, for example. That changed everything when that happened. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? 
So love is love should grow, and, and you work through each other's feelings and desires. It can't be all one-sided and what have you. So love grows out of evaluating the characteristics of the other person. Love grows out of evaluating the characteristics of the other person. Love is the other person-centered. Not you, your spouse. It's what the Bible talks about, and we all fight it. I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm not up here saying I'm perfect. I just have a lot of experience. Love is the other person centered. Love is outgoing. Love results in sharing. Love focuses only on one person. Love gives a real sense of security. Love inspires a feeling of trust in the other person. Love causes one to work for the benefit of the other. And, I, and most of the marriage counseling that I do, and I don't do a lot of it, I've done enough through the years, most of the things that I deal with are not horrible, sinful things, it's irritating things. And you know, the, the, the cart can only hold so much straw, you know, the camel can only hold so much straw, and after a while you reach a tipping point, or you reach a saturation point, where I just can't deal with this anymore. You know, it's, it's one thing to get hit in the head once with a ball bat, but it's another thing to get thumped on the head every hour. It's torture when it's just repetitive over and over and over and over and over and over. And people can only take so much of that. And when there's conflict in marriage, if it's not resolved peaceably and corporately in marriage, then you have a tough situation on your hand. I believe there's things you, ha- you must do to appease your spouse, and it goes both ways. And I don't believe holding out on a spouse because they won't do something and I'm not going to do something. That don't accomplish nothing either. You're making it worse. A, a, a little bit of a brain would tell you that. Love des- desires to earn the respect of the other person. Love spurs the ambition to plan and save for the future. Love inspires dreams that are reasonable and attainable. Love causes one to face problems squarely. And try to solve them. Love is consistent. Love makes physical attraction a lesser part of a relationship. Love gives physical contact greater meaning. And finally, love grows into an expression of tender affection. It's a difference between love and infatuation. Let me hurry on. The Bible teaches that there's three types of love, and it's important to understand them. First of all, I mentioned this last week and told you last week I'd cover it this week. Number one, there's eros love, and that's human love for one another. This was the Greek goddess of love, and from her name we have derived the term erotic, which is a connotation of sexual relationship. Eros is love that seeks sensual expression. It's a romantic sexual love that is inspired by the biological structure of the human nature. A husband and wife in a happy marriage will love each other romantically and erotically, as long as it's appropriate and so on. But eros love is essentially love between two humans. The second type of love is a filial love, and it's a man's love for God. In a good marriage, the husband and wife are also good friends. Friendship means companionship, communication, and cooperation. 
This is known as filiotype love. It involves total togetherness in areas such as communication, business, finances, even uh, extended marital uh, marriage-based relationships, in-laws and what have you, uh, common interests, social living. Herein lies the essence of working together and total teamwork. This is loving one another and God. The third type of love is agape love, which is a self-giving love. The love that goes on loving when the other person is unlovable and unwilling to return love. Agape love is not just something that happens to you, it's something you make happen. Love is a personal act of commitment. Agape love is a preference for the other person to wish only well for them, to be ultimately concerned for their welfare. Agape love expresses affectionate reverence and grateful recognition of the other person for the privilege of loving them. It involves prizing the pleasure found in the other person above all things in one's life. I want to tell you something here tonight before I continue. If you really love your wife, you're going to behave different. And if you really love your husband, you're going to behave different. Truly loving somebody the way God wants you to love them, you care about your conduct, and you care how your spouse looks at you. It is a living desire never to be without the other person. It is a deep, I long for you, expression. It's a, I long for you when it comes to the other person. And it's above and beyond the association of anyone else. Anybody else that can cheat on your spouse, you don't love your spouse. Not the way God wants you to. If you love your spouse, you're going to be faithful to that person no matter what. The greatest expression of agape love is found in Ephesians. The Bible said, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. If you can't do that for your wife, then you don't love your wife. I'm just being real here tonight. No greater love than this, the Bible said, for scarcely for a righteous, a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Christ's giving of himself was a total giving for the benefit and welfare of his church. He gave of himself, it was a total giving of himself for the benefit and welfare of the church. His giving was other person-centered. He didn't do that because he was selfish. He did that because he was giving. It was outgoing and he expected nothing in return. God, who instituted marriage, described his sacred relationship with the Greek word agape when he commanded, so ought men to love their wife. If you don't love your spouse here tonight, I've given you a pathway. You go back to the first fruits. You go through repentance, where you get forgiveness, 
and you change the way you behave. It's what the Bible teaches. And then you begin reconciliation and restoration. The relationship of a man and woman in marriage was intended to be no less. It must be of one agape love. So let me spend the, the next few moments here tonight. Let me talk to you about expectations for marriage. Does anybody realize here tonight, have you ever known that there's selfish motives for getting married? Some, let me give you some of the men's reasons for getting married. Some of you wives, this might be a little, you know, a little light may go off in your head. I'm going to do this to the, I'm going to swap it so men don't panic. But there are many reasons why men marry other than finding the will of God for a life partnership. Some marry for the sole purpose of physical gratification. It's a license to have sex with somebody. They haven't bothered to survey marriage in light of sickness or pregnancy or childbirth. This is a narrow, selfish expectation of marriage. And then there's men that marry to gain a free and reasonable housekeeper. They want someone to clean the house, wash their clothes, and take care of all the manifold responsibilities around the home. You know, mom and dad kicks them out. The next thing you do is get married, and I'll just find somebody to do what mom used to do. And then some men marry because of the social peer pressure against being single. I've known of preachers that got married because their church didn't quite value them and their ministry enough because they didn't understand marital and family issues because they themselves weren't married, so they got married so they could be of, of greater impact to their church. That's not a good reason to get married. I think y'all get married because you love somebody, but that's what I'm trying to teach here tonight. But anyway, some men do it for social peer pressure against being sing- single. Fear grips them, and they panic at the thought of becoming an isolated bachelor. So marriage for them becomes a way of gaining social acceptance while escaping the classification of just being prude. And then other men marry for strictly business reading reasons that It may be to their advantage for promotions and raises and salaries to project the wholesome image of being a family man. And then other men marry because they need an agent to tell them what to do. Some men get that whether you need it or not. (laughs) My word, man, y'all smile. Y'all smiled more over Walmart a little while ago than you did that. I thought this was a whole lot funnier. They're grown-up boys who have not accepted responsibility and therefore need a strong motherly image in their life. And then women have their reasons for getting married. Women also find reasons to marry that are not legitimate. Some are looking for somebody to support them. Want a big, fine car and a big, fine house. I'm going to find me a rich guy and I'm going to marry him and he'll support me. Buddy, you folks have checked out on me tonight, man. Woo! Uh, some, some lady folks get tired of the routine of working jobs after the novelty wears off, and many women long for someone to take care of them. Some want to escape from their home. I've known of people that's done that. They don't like their parents anymore, so they need an escape from their house. They don't want to be under parental supervision anymore. There's women that don't want the, what we used to call years ago, the old maid tag. You know, I don't want to be 48 years old and not married. Everybody called me an old maid or whatever. I, I know of a lady that uh, was kind of getting old and all the people in her age was getting married and nobody picked her. 
So every prayer request time at church, she'd hold up her hand like this and tuck in that wedding band finger. Y'all pray for me that I can get a husband. Y'all pray for me that I can get... Boy, that's, that's some pressure right there, ain't it? I'm just embarrassed that I'm not married like everybody else. Boy, thank God for Harmony.com and GetMarried.com and Run Off and Escape from the House.com and all that, but you can get married in a heartbeat nowadays. <clears throat> Some women marry because of the subconscious desire to give birth to a baby. I've known people like that. I want to have a baby, and so I want to do it legitimately and what have you, so I'm going to get married and just have a baby. I don't care about the man, I just want to have a baby. So this is not at all uncommon among women as they respond to natural maternal instincts. But strangely, some people enter into the venture of marriage for solely that. Just want to see what it's like to be married. Make an adventure out of it. It's like going to see Canada or traveling over to Europe. I'll just get married and take a little vacation for a while and I'll pack my bags at some point and go back to where I came from. It's nothing more to them than kind of a trial and error thing. And uh, nowadays it's okay because you can get a divorce pretty easily. Sad, but it's the way it is. And then along with marriage comes enchantments. Many couples enter into marriage with the feeling that the other person is responsible for his or her happiness. Everybody listen. Nobody is responsible for your happiness but you. You never marry so I can be happier. He's going to make me happier. He has money. He has a car. I ain't going to make you happy. If you're not happy on the inside of yourself, he ain't going to make you happy. And you men, she ain't going to make you happy either. No, sir. Uh, just want to get married. Just It don't work that way. This is one way in lopsided marriage is not the often repeated fairy tell cliche and they got married and they lived happily ever after don't work that way they visualize life as being like an out the outward trimmings displayed in others without the strain and stress of everyday living i have literally gone through phases of my life where i've looked at other married couples and say man they've got to be the most perfect people on the planet but i only saw them in the outside Never was in their home and listen to them fuss and cuss at each other like everybody else does, and everybody does it. Need to leave out the cuss part, but um, you get the point. So the public exposure and fanfare of popularity in the entertainment world has deceived many unenlightened newlyweds. What they visualize marriage to be, what what married life is really like, is quite different from what they manifest and show you. So there's three very common expectations that couples have for their marriage. Couples expect their marriage to work out and never end in divorce. I've never known of anybody that got married and said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and get married, but in three years we'll be divorced. I've never known anybody to do that. Everybody goes into marriage saying, I love this guy, I love this gal, and we're going to live. We're going to make it forever. And then everybody goes into marriage Determined to be faithful to one another. They want to have fidelity in their marriage. We're going to be faithful to each other. And then the third thing is they want their marriage to progress smoothly without any major upheavals or adjustments. Fulfillment of these expectations will not just happen naturally or accidentally, but they will take consistent effort, change, work, 
commitment, maturity, and the list goes on. Marriage is not easy. It's rewarding, it's amazing, it's wonderful, but it's not easy. And then there's disenchantment pertaining to marriage. After marriage, each spouse soon discovers that the other person is just that, another person. You men, you married that angel, you married that angel, and after two years of marriage, you find out she is one. She's always up in the air harping on something. (laughs) As long as they live together, as long as you live together married, the man will remain a man, and the woman will always be a woman. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So it doesn't usually take a spouse too long to realize that they can never completely change their partner to be like them. Has anybody ever been successful here tonight when you got married? You completely changed your spouse into exactly what you wanted. Has anybody ever been successful? Raise your hand if you've ever been successful in that. Look at that. If there's anybody here tonight thinking about getting married, don't do that. You've got a house full of witnesses right here that says that don't work. More people have said, I'll I'll, I'll marry him, but I'll change him. No, you're not. No, you're not. You might for a month or two, but after a while, their feet's going to hit the ground, and they're going to realize that, hey, I'm me, and I'm going to act like me, whether he likes it or she likes it or not. God did not make you to be the same. I talked about that last week. Variety is a spice of life, and the beauty of difference lies in discovering and accepting it in others. The uniqueness of God's creation. Marriage is not the carefree life of irresponsible youth, but rather a responsible yet rewarding life for mature adults. Actually, statistics say nowadays that you need to be between 25 and 30 before you get married. You're not mature enough until then. It's all that millennial business. Y'all did that to yourself. You know, you play video games till you're 24 and then decide, I want to get married. (laughs) I'm just trying to be real here tonight. So let me put out the landing gear and bring this to a landing. Y'all with me here tonight? Amen. Hope y'all come back next Wednesday night. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. When you get married to somebody, there has to be something on the inside of you that says, I'm willing to change. Now, you'll resist your spouse trying to change you. But you have to go into the marriage saying that I'm willing to change a little bit. Maturity will tell you that. Maturity will tell you that. You cannot be an idiot like you were at home and get married and be an idiot and think everything's going to be okay. It don't work out that way. People don't like idiots. So let's talk about maturity. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. Y'all get that? Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity go hand in hand. Normally, the emotional, emotionally immature child is also spiritually immature. Therefore, it is necessary to emphasize the emotional growth of the child of God so that the inner spiritual nature may grow as well. The emotionally mature person relies on himself takes responsibility for his own actions. This is the emotionally mature person. He relies on himself. He depends on himself for happiness. 
takes responsibility for his own actions. He learns from experience. He adjusts to others. He respects others' rights and property. That includes your spouse. The emotionally mature person works towards realistic goals and has self-respect. Maturity has taught him to live with or wisely avoid things he cannot change. The mature person condemns no one for mishaps. His greatest concern is getting things done properly and in order. He is strong, courteous, tolerant, and able to bear stress and strain. He or she is true to their own ideals, while at the same time working with others in spite of occasional conflicts. The image of the mature, self-image of the mature person is healthy because he or she has learned to be grateful for their strengths and depend on God to help them overcome their weaknesses. Flattery is not sought after. The mature person has no need to control others. The mature person can be a winner while losing because failure is no disgrace when he has done his best. The mature person can accept criticism, disappointment, or grief. The mature person can perceive, understand, and sympathize with other points of view. The mature person is flexible enough to change his own views when convincing evidence is presented. And lastly, and perhaps most important, the mature person has a genuine capacity to love because he knows God loves him in spite of his own human frailties. That's a mature person. The immature person, on the other hand, does not learn from experience. They keep repeating the first grade over and over and over. The immature person rebels against the past, remains dependent on other people, loses their temper when they don't get their way. The immature person has little or no regard for the feelings of others. The immature person has poor judgment, feels sorry for themselves, cannot tolerate criticism or aggression from others, vents their feelings on themselves and others. They can't keep a job. They chronically need attention. And the immature person is incapable of loving others. Is everybody on board with that? I'm trying to hurry, so I'm, I'm not going to add a lot of comment. Let's talk about spiritual, emotional, spiritual and emotional stability. The need for God and the selection of a mate in marriage is of utmost importance today. Spiritual and emotional stability are essential in both spouses in today's world of abortion, rebellious youth, drug abuse, drunkenness, violence. People must be spiritually and emotionally stable. The presence or absence of spiritual and emotional stability in the home determines whether the children of a marriage will follow these same vicious life cycles. God is keenly interested in spiritual and emotional maturity. The Bible said, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God 
and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is, un, is unskillful, and the word of righteousness, talking about being an, an, an infant, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's the importance of spiritual maturity and emotional maturity and stability. Frustrations and disappointments are part of life, but how they affect us is primarily our choice. We can allow disappointments to hamper us, destroy us, and even ruin our marriage. Another response is to accept the disappointment, endure the hurt, discover that we can learn from the distasteful experience, and then make some new plans or alternatives. Consider the following scripture and apply it to marriage. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So as you can see, God has a whole lot to do with marriage. The Bible has a whole lot to do with marriage because God invented it. And it is imperative that we follow God's plan into marriage and then after we're married. There has to be a dependency on God. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of components that goes into a happy marriage. It doesn't just happen. And I hope everybody understands that. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. I hope this was a blessing to you. Come back. Be planned to be back next Wednesday night. We're going to continue. Next Wednesday night we'll launch in a little bit of the family. And uh, so God bless you tonight. Everybody say, I love you, Jesus. Thank the Lord. God bless you. You may be dismissed from a setting down posture.